Hi everyone, it's Kat here, um, bringing you a little special treat during lockdown. We've got the recording of last night's first ever Contour versus Corona lecture with Professor Costas Lapovitsas, which I'm sure you will enjoy. And next Thursday, we've got Professor Leo Panich on Labour's future after Corbyn, which I think will be a very interesting discussion especially given some of um, Professor Panitch's previous writings on the Labour left, on New Labour. It'll be really interesting to see what he thinks the future is for Labour now. You can register for this event on the Contour website. We'll be hosting lectures every Thursday under lockdown on the crisis that coronavirus has created, the structures it's shaken, and what opportunities there are for the revolutionary left under these circumstances. So here's last night's lecture and visit contour.co.uk for more info on the upcoming online series. Now to introduce uh, Costas, um, Professor Costas Lapavistas um, is a professor of economics at the uh, SOAS uh, in London. He was elected as a member of the Greek parliament under the Syriza um, party and um, since then has been writing uh, on a whole range of issues, uh, but has been writing in particular uh, on neoliberalism, uh, the European Union, and recently wrote an article on Jacobin, uh, which everyone should read and we'll link to um, after this, um, which exposes uh, what might happen next when it comes to how neoliberalism might assert itself on the post-COVID uh, recovery and in the aftermath of the initial crisis caused by the virus. With that, I'm now going to hand over to Costas, and uh, look forward to, to hearing his insights. And in about half an hour's time, we'll open up to breakout groups. Thank you. Okay, thank you, um, Jonathan. It's, uh, it's a great pleasure for me to, to be here with you. I responded to the uh, invite um, very willingly. Um, I want to explore some ideas with people who are socialists and who think uh, radically about capitalism and see where we are and where we might go in the near future. What are the uh, implications of the coronavirus crisis? Now, I've got to tell you that this is very much work in progress because obviously the crisis has just started. Uh, it's work that we've been developing um, through an international uh, team of uh, socialists and um, researchers uh, in the UK, but also in Spain, in um, Italy, in France, and elsewhere. Hopefully, we will produce um, some, uh, um, some important, powerful work uh, uh, in the time to come, discussing where capitalism is going, basically. So let me give you an insight. Let me give you a taste of, um, uh, of our thinking and uh, of our work. But before I do that, can you all hear me okay? Are we all right? Yeah, good. Um, okay, now, the coronavirus crisis, right? This is, of course, um, unprecedented. There's been, there's, there's been no crisis like that in the history of capitalism. It's unprecedented for a variety of reasons, some of which are obvious. And the most important one is, of course, the role of the state in uh, inducing the crisis or accelerating it and in dealing with it. And that's what makes it so important. Um, I want to discuss the implications for economy, for society and for politics at this stage 
of, of our knowledge, because obviously things are going to unfold. Uh, after making a case, I will exemplify it briefly for the European Union. I will tell you what I think the impact will be uh, on the European Union and what it tells us about the European Union. Um, I was saying then that we must start with the economy, because in the first instance, this is an economic shock of the first order. But it was delivered to a weakening economy because the neoliberal financialized capitalism of our times, certainly in the mature core countries of the system, had reached a plateau after the crisis of 2007-2009, and it wasn't really uh, advancing in any dynamic uh, uh, way at all. And you can see this very easily in terms of four um, key figures, four key uh, points. The first is that growth, in other words, capital accumulation, because that's basically what growth is, has been very weak during this last decade, the weakest it's been for, for years, since, since the 1970s. So growth has been very weak. Capital accumulation has been very weak. Second, profitability of capital, particularly uh, productive capital, um, has been weak, has been weak and actually declining since about 2014, 2015. So no great shakes for profitability. Third, a crucial productivity growth, the engine of capitalism. Capitalism must have rapid productivity growth, must change, revolutionize the means of production, as Marx said, right? Must change uh, productivity, improve productivity all the time if it is to succeed. Productivity growth has been appalling um, across the core countries and in Britain it has been atrocious, the worst uh, for decades. Um, and last, fourth point, inequality, which is basically a sickness that eats capitalism from within. Inequality has reached unprecedented levels um, and it has become worse um, the last decade. So on all these scores, this was weak accumulation um, without dynamic uh, strength to it and actually uh, promoting uh, inequality uh, in society, therefore creating tensions. In a sense, what happened since 2007, 2009, since that huge crisis, is that no structural change has taken place. Everybody talked about it. The ruling class across the world, the ruling classes across the world talked about it, but in practice, no structural change of any substance. Basically, um, they used control over money and they used control over key central banks to stabilize the system, to, to avoid the collapse in 2009, but did not change things. You could see that in terms of um, finance as well. Um, that's the last point I wanna make on the economy, in terms of finance, because people keep talking and keep thinking that because we live in an era of financialization, finance has been going from strength to strength. Oh no, that's not the case. Um, Finance in the core countries, the, the, the metropolitan countries uh, of capitalism, the United States, Britain, and so on, finance, the sector of finance, has been at best marking time since 2009. Um, and you can see that in terms of debt. Um, financialized capitalism is capitalism of debt. And yet, the last 10 years, the balance of debt has been uh, unusual. 
Household debt has declined because people don't borrow for, for housing. Mortgage debt has declined. Um, bank to bank debt has declined, but bank to enterprise debt or market to enterprise debt has increased and crucially state debt has increased. This has become capitalism relying on the state borrowing money to sustain the financial system and to keep the structural parameters broadly the same. That's the last 10 years that um, um, we have lived through. It is financial, financialized capitalism relying on the state. It's extraordinary. And the, the most important its ability to create money through the central bank, pump money into the system and keep prevent the, the thing from collapsing. So that for the state that that much for the state of uh, uh, of the key countries in 2000 um, since 2009. Now look now let look at the shock now look at coronavirus. Now coronavirus is a, is in the first instance uh, a public health issue first and foremost right it's a public health issue, um, and the first thing it revealed is that this financialized capitalism lacking dynamism, unequal, and so on, is certainly incapable of dealing with health shocks. There is no doubt at all about it. Um, health services uh, proved um, uh, not up to the task. Provision was weak. Uh, awareness and ability to, um, to, to, to defend the health of the public uh, was very poor. Um, neoliberal policies followed for decades um, have weakened, significantly weakened health. That's, that's clear, that's clear. Let's, I, don't, I don't wanna spend too much time on that, we can discuss it later. When you look at the shock to the economy, however, things become far worse than this, far worse than this. Why? Because of course, to deal with the epidemic, this state that was incapable of handling it in any rational way, shut the economy down. That's basically what they did. They were unprepared and incapable of dealing with the epidemic uh, in a selected way, in a selective way, targeted way, and so on, and they shut the economy down. Um, shutting the economy down delivered a shock of unprecedented magnitude. Um, on the side of demand, aggregate demand, what we had was phenomenal contraction. Demand collapsed, basically, and it, it, it collapsed because people stayed at home, they rearranged what they spend, Certain areas of the economy were devastated, eating out, hotels, traveling, and so on. Other areas had uh, a weakening of demand, and therefore um, employment immediately suffered because people were fired or, 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 or put on notice. At the same time, there was a shock to supply. The shock to supply was even more severe than the shock, the shock to demand because obviously, if you shut down some firms, then you stop the supply chain, and therefore you stop production in other firms, and you do it across borders. So the shock to supply was also tremendous, and therefore loss of employment from the, the, the shock to supply. The combined thing, the impact on working people, losing um, employment and weakening of income has delivered a dramatic shock, uh, secondary, secondary shock to, to demand, and therefore, we're heading towards an unprecedented recession. I mean, the magnitude of the recession by all accounts would be unprecedented uh, for decades. 
in uh, the core countries. We don't know exactly how big it's, it's going to be. Like the organizations in the world, right? The IMF came out with uh, an assessment uh, three days ago that is, um, you know, just eye-watering. I mean, uh, they're talking of seven and a half percent recession, contraction um, across the European Union. So it's huge, right? Now, two more points on this. The shock to the core of the system then is gigantic. An already weakening economy has received that shock and therefore you're talking of a huge recession. The shock to the periphery uh, might be even bigger. And it might be even bigger because the periphery will be hit by the recession of the core, the contraction of trade, um, and crucially, the, um, the retreat of capital, the, the reversal of capital flows. Uh, people, uh, lenders, big money capitalists will be pulling their money out of uh, um, the developing countries, and that will uh, create, has cre already created financial difficulties, add the impact on trade, you're gonna have balance of trade difficulties, currencies are falling, the situation across the developing world looks simply appalling if you add the impact of the uh, epidemic as well to it. So it's a global shock. It's a global crisis, an unprecedented crisis in the history of capitalism, I repeat. The last thing to say, the second and last thing to say in this, is that amidst all this chaos, we also had an oil shock. The coronavirus did not cause the oil shock. Um, that had to do with global oil politics, um, but it has materialized. So basically a war of producers, a war of producers for control of um, output, big producers, state producers, but also private producers. Um, the war of producers has uh, created a flood of supply. And at the same time, demand collapsed because of the recession. The combination has been deadly for oil. And some oil in the United States, I don't know if you've been following it, some oil in the United States has actually dropped below zero in terms of price. In other words, producers are paying consumers to take the oil away because it, it, it is cheaper to do that rather than store the oil. The collapse in the oil price means, of course, that for some developing countries, the crisis is now a matter of life or death. Venezuela, uh, other, other uh, small, sizable producers of, with low incomes, but also big producers like uh, Saudi Arabia. Others, though, will benefit because the, the falling oil price will lessen the pressure on the balance of trade. So it's complex. So that much about the economy. Now, immediately that shock became clear and the, the magnitude of the crisis became clear. It became evident that something had to be done here. I'll have to tread on sort of difficult terrain because it's not in entirely clear what, what will happen, what policy will be on the part of uh, the ruling elite. It's not entirely clear. And we will be skating between what, what they are doing and what they ought to be doing, or what I think they ought to be doing, and what we should be arguing that they, they should be doing. It's, it's clear, however, that whatever the, 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 the response to the crisis is, it will hinge in the first instance on the nation state. The nation state is the main uh, um, agent 
for confronting it. But it cannot be just the nation state. It cannot be that just that, it must also be society itself, it must also be communities, it must also be associational networks, it must also be grassroots organizations, because if it is just the state, then the state will probably defend neoliberalism again. Then the state will probably confront the crisis in ways that will entrench neoliberal privilege and will not really bring about um, uh, structural transformation. Um, so let me, before, one last thing here. In other words, it's a matter fundamentally of democratic intervention as well. If it is the state that has to respond, and if it is local communities that have to respond, it's a matter of democratic intervention. It's a matter of actually democratizing the response. And I think that's where the left should also intervene. Now, in its broad parameters, the response is clear. It's not really, it's not really rocket science. Right? If demand has collapsed, which it has, then we need societal, in other words, state mechanisms for boosting demand, which means protect employment, prevent people from being fired, and protect income. In other words, pay people's uh, uh, income publicly and see what you will do later. This, this is the obvious, the, min the, 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 the very minimum that needs to be done. And therefore, in this context, now is the moment for us, I think, to argue in a coherent way for a basic income. Uh, the strategy of basic income is in effect put in place, it has been put in place by, by, by many states across the world. Now is the time to argue it seriously and we can discuss it subsequently, uh, what it might mean. So that's the first part, support demand uh, in that way. Second and equally crucial is of course, intervene on the supply side. Intervening the supply side has a different set of uh, determinants, of course. What uh, the state and society must do is intervene to prevent the collapse of the supply chains. And that means taking certain areas of the economy under public management and under public ownership, because that's basically what it boils down to. Okay? Take certain areas under public management and public ownership. Uh, use state aid. Um, creatively and uh, in effective ways uh, locally um, and have a big program of public investment through which to boost supply and to boost production um, locally. In a sense, what, what needs to be done, and that can start um, in the fairly near future, is a program that would be centrally led that would rebalance the economy. And it would rebalance the economy in this country and elsewhere uh, in Europe, but also in the United States um, and uh, across much of the world. The question that immediate, immediately arises is how to fund it, how to pay for that. Okay, I don't think that I don't think that any sane person would actually disagree with the main parameters. We might disagree on how it's going to be done. What does it mean to boost demand? What does it mean to, to boost supply? What does it mean to intervene and how do you do it? But that they need boosting is clear. The question is how to pay for it. And there we come to the cracks of it. Because obviously it's impossible to pay for it unless the state borrows. They left to be public borrowing. It's, 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 it's plain arithmetic. They'll have to be um, public borrowing. And that means, in effect, that uh, the state will, will have to operate 
uh, as if this was a, a war situation. We need war finance. People keep talking about uh, a war situation, a war, war conditions, okay? Actually, it's not really war conditions in terms of the reality of it, because in a war, you shift productive capacity away from peace towards war activities, and you cut people's consumption in order to do that. That's not where we are. We're in a crisis. However, funding the way out of the crisis needs war finance. In other words, it needs the state to come in, the state must borrow, it must use the banking system, it must uh, expand uh, its ability to obtain funds across society, and it must use that in order to rescue the economy. In effect, the state will be making a down payment on future production, which must be reorganized, as I said, on a social uh, basis. And that must also happen with the active participation of local communities. Now, I've already spoken for quite a long time. I've got another 10 minutes, haven't I? Jonathan. I've got another 10 minutes, no? Yes, you have another 10 minutes, so I, I was on mute there, so yes. So let me, let me, let me, I mean, I've been going through it very rapidly, so I hope I haven't, um, you know, I've done it too fast. But we'll find, we'll find, we'll find out when it comes to questions. Um, let me say now, let me exemplify this with regard to the EU. This is a general case that I have made to you about uh, the core of the system. The European Union is a very peculiar part of the core of the system, however. And uh, it allows us to bring out some of the social and political dimensions of this uh, broad case uh, in a very particular and very sharp way. Uh, and I want to spend a few minutes discussing that. Now, I, I want to say at the outset that the coronavirus crisis for the European Union is a tremendous shock, bigger than for other parts of the world, and actually it might prove um, a big push towards um, historic disarticulation of it. I won't talk about collapse of it because I don't think it will collapse, but historic disarticulation uh, of the European Union. The thing to say about the European Union is that it has been drifting since about 2013. I presented you with a general picture of uh, financial capitalism drifting the last decade. Well, the European Union as a political organization has been drifting square. I mean, I, I, it is, it's the definition of drifting. It, it's just, it's, it's failed to take any serious decisions about which way it's gonna go. And politically, uh, it's been one day at a time. No direction, no strategy that I can see. What the crisis has done, and it's done it very rapidly, is to catapult the nation state into prominence. Everything I said previously about the side of the supply, the side of the demand and how to respond, pivoted on the state, as I said, and on local communities. Well, that's what's happened in the European Union. We haven't had a communal response and the absence of it is not accidental. I wanna come back to it. What we've had is in practice, each nation state taking action to defend its economy and its society as best it can. And the institutions and mechanisms of the European Union so far 
have actually proven uh, as much of a hindrance as help, probably more, more of a hindrance than help to nation states in dealing with the coronavirus um, crisis. Um, in particular, the euro has emerged once again as a major problem for the European Union. And the tensions between core and periphery um, have become once again um, very, very sharp and very strong. Um, I think we can cut across much of the, um, uh, of the detail by looking directly at what they've actually done so far, and what they, the union has done as a whole, and putting it in, in the context of the previous discussion. So what have they done? They've done some important things, um, not positively to deal with the crisis, but to allow nation states to, to deal with the crisis, not to, not to hinder nation states. So what have they done? Well, they've lifted the Stability and Growth Pact. The European Union operated until a few weeks ago under the Stability and Growth Pact, which is, which is a polite name for austerity. This is the, the logic of it was austerity, fiscal austerity, tightness, and so on, for working people mostly, they've lifted that. So member states can now operate without paying too much attention for the moment to the need for surpluses and so on. In other words, austerity has taken a backseat. They had to do that because obviously otherwise the state, nation states would have been unable to intervene. So that's the first thing they've done. Uh, the second thing they did, which is also very important, is they have relaxed state aid rules. The European Union uh, has, for the last two decades, operated under very tight state aid rules in the name of uh, competition, right? equalizing competition. So states um, have been unable to intervene to uh, rebalance their economies in the direction of industry and so on, because they've been prevented from doing it. Um, through the European Court of Justice as well in the final instance. That has been one main, um, one of the main levers of neoliberalism in Europe. Well, that's also been lifted. So stability and growth pact has been lifted for now. State aid rules have been relaxed for now. Um, the, third thing, the third thing they have done um, relates to the European uh, Central Bank, the ECB. Now, the European Central Bank was reluctant to intervene to start with. And that's because, of course, as I've already mentioned, the European Union does not respond positively as a totality. It cannot do that. Right? It, doesn't, it, it, doesn't, it, it, it is loath to do that. However, the European Central Bank was forced to respond in the end because the more it was, the more it was delaying uh, a response as a central bank, the more the financial markets of the Union um, were, were heading towards a major crisis and German and French banks were threatened with collapse. So eventually the European Central Bank had to respond and had to adopt a program um, similar to what the Federal Reserve is doing in the United States, but not as big, not remotely as big. Uh, it adopted a program uh, through which it basically buys uh, state bonds. You can go into the secondary market and, and buy state bonds. These are the three crucial things that they've done so far. However, when you look at positive responses again, 
you're not going to find any. There will be no euro, no eurobonds or corona bonds, as they call them. That is basically being killed off, and that, that was killed off at the last eurogroup meeting last week. And today they are meeting again. The leaders are meeting again in a similar fashion to us. That's how they're going to be meeting um, to discuss whether they're going to organize some kind of joint fiscal response. Uh, in other words, putting some money together and helping um, the southern weaker states, peripheral states, uh, deal with the crisis. Don't hold your breath. Don't expect any serious, um, any serious uh, funding to um, be made available to Spain or to Italy or to Portugal or to Greece and so on. Something will probably be done, something. Um, but don't hold your breath for any big amounts of money because, of course, the core of the union, the leading countries of the union, the hegemonic powers of the union, Germany, and then other countries in the north, Holland and so on, do not want to make taxpayers' money available to the south. This isn't, this isn't um, an alliance of partners. This is an alliance of nation states. And nation states in the north do not wish to share risks and to pay activity um, um, and, and, and policies uh, in the South. Now, that's where we are. Now think about it for a minute. What have we got politically? Where are we politically? While this has been happening, there's been a tremendous hue and cry in Europe, partly reproduced in the UK among the, um, the remnants of the Remain camp, who still cannot believe that Britain is out. Um, so there's been a tremendous hue and cry to the effect that Europe must now take the next step and issue Eurobonds, Corona bonds, uh, borrow jointly because that's gonna solve our problems. Think about it for a minute. Let's assume that this happens. Let's assume that they actually go for Corona bonds, which they will not do, but let's assume they do, that they do it. Or let's assume that the European Central Bank buys even more bonds than it is buying at the moment. It decides that, okay, we're not gonna have Euro bonds, but I'm gonna buy any bonds that governments publish, uh, issue. I will come out and buy all the bonds. Let's assume that this is what happens. What would that mean for the European Union and for the Eurozone in particular? There is no stability and growth pact. There are no state regu aid regulations. And then the European Central Bank will be buying bonds um, across, the, across the Union. In other words, we've got a system here in which there is, there is no coherence. There, is, there are no rules. There are nation states that spend what they need, help their industries as they need. And then there is this printing press in Frankfurt, which will produce the money, which will allow states to get on with it. Where is the union in this? What kind of union is that? Where, where is the logic? Where is the, the coherence? Where is the convergence? Where are the common policies? Uh, in other words, the Europhiles, who are now arguing strongly uh, that the union must go further and further down this uh, line, don't quite appreciate that what's happening is that the union is falling apart in front of our own eyes. And the more you push for that, the more you argue for the disintegration of it. Effectively, the European Union has become an empty shell. It's an empty shell financed by the European Central Bank. What does this mean for us or for socialists? I think it means that um, 
we set aside all that ideological stuff about Europe and what it will do. Thankfully, in Britain, this is now in retreat. We set that aside and we argue that what we need to confront the crisis and what we need to confront the inability of capitalism today to deal with crises like that uh, in any meaningful way, what we need is um, democratic state intervention on the basis of popular will and on the basis of popular participation and on the basis of communal uh, organization from below. If we're going to restructure the economy, if we're going to borrow to do it, we need to have a say on how the money is borrowed, how the money is repaid, and what happens in the sphere of supply. Who creates wealth, how it is created, what kind of goods we, we wish to see, how do we wish to trade, what kind of international links do we want, and what kind of local uh, activities do we want to promote, and how to use state aid in order to do that. All that is also fundamental if you really wish to have any kind of policy that will do things about the environment, that will confront the needs of the um, uh, working people in the poorer areas, uh, and so on. I think it's pretty clear. I think that's where we are. Um, and I think we need to start thinking more along those lines and sharpening the policies and sharpening our demands. That's all I've got to say. I've spoken for too long. Um, and I look forward to the discussion. Okay, Dale. Hi, Dale. Nice to, nice to meet you. Hi, Jonathan. Uh, thank you to you and the team for putting us on. Um, and thank you, Costas, for your contribution. It's been really, really interesting. Uh, the question we, we had, um, given there's some parallels with uh, today's crisis and 2008-2009, um, with the benefit of hindsight uh, from your time in Syriza, is there anything that you would have done differently that you would suggest to people or organisations and political parties today that they would do? Um, just... Uh, Chloe. Hi, Chloe. Thanks very much for joining us and thanks for, uh, for putting this question forward. Yeah, perfect. No, again, thanks to everybody for organising. Um, and yeah, as a group, you know, we really, really loved your chat earlier. We particularly, well, our question um, was around, we like the idea of democratising the decisions of what type of economy we're going to have going forward. So our question was about how can we... Uh, how can we communicate and share that idea and really build that idea as a possibility? Because I don't think, you know, the, like that's a revolutionary way of looking at what could come forward. Um, and I don't think, you know, lots of people wouldn't realise that we do have the right and ability to do that. So our question is, you know, how would you suggest we go to communicate that message? Thanks very much. Okay, I'm going to take one more, uh, so we take them in groups of three. Uh, so the third group, spokesperson for the third group, if you just wave at me. Uh, Raymond. Yeah, thanks, thank Raymond. yeah. cheers. Uh, th thanks for that, Costas. That was really stimulating. Um, the first uh, demand that you mentioned was around universal basic income, and that kind of dominated the discussion in the group uh, where a number of us are kind of opposed to universal basic income being seen as some sort of panacea for uh, working class people. But I have to say, when you you look at the, the Tories on the telly yesterday, when faced with the question, they are uh, riven by this. I mean, the, the, the last thing they want is to introduce any kind of 
uplift in working class people's standard of living. And it also, I think, drives a coach and horses through this idea, uh, deserving and undeserving poor. And so there was a view in the group that perhaps tactically it might well be a, a positive step, if you like, but as part of a wider social contract that we might want to demand with, you know, a, a number of other provisions. And I just thought, well, do you accept that there's perhaps problems with the universal basic income, but perhaps we want to maybe just look at it tactically as a short-term measure to try and at least alleviate mm -hmm. the pain that working-class people are going through, but also to really drive a coach and horses through the Tories' uh, strategy at the moment. Okay, thanks very much for that, Raymond. Um, we're going to take that set of uh, three uh, questions there and, and uh, ask Costas then to, to give a response. Thanks, Costas. Let me start with the last one, and then I'll do the more uh, activist ones uh, subsequently. Let me start with the last one. I've also been very, very skeptical of the idea of universal basic income. Very skeptical from the very beginning. Okay, uh, didn't persuade me. Uh, a variety of reasons that we we probably share. We didn't go into it, but we probably share them. But look at what's happening right now. The shock to income and the shock to demand has been so gigantic that the nation state in this country, but also elsewhere, has been forced to intervene and support people's income. Effectively, they have nationalized wages. People have been put on furlough. In other words, the state pays you 80% of your wages. Okay, I know there are various problems with that, but it does pay the wages of a lot of people. So in effect, it nationalizes the wage bill of a large number of enterprises. At, at the same time, the state has also nationalized uh, the accounts, basically um, the losses of enterprises and it covers them. Why? Because it knows that if it doesn't do it and the economy shuts down, there'll be Armageddon. And let's look at the first part, nationalizing wages. Well, that, that's exactly the point that you made. Right now, we've got action taken by the nation state that goes against the very logic of um, not only neoliberal financialized capitalism, but any capitalism. Um, we've known for a long time that the state can do that to defend capitalism. Here is a clear example. Well, then that's a good opportunity, I think, politically and also socially for us to argue for universal basic income. The conditions have changed. If the state is going to do that with some people, in some instances and so on, we should come out and say no. Do it uniformly. Do it uniformly for large sections of the population, pay a basic income, support demand and support income in that way, and do it throughout 2020. Um, the group of uh, socialists and others I'm working with at the moment um, have done some calculations for Spain on this issue, uh, on universal basic income. And our, uh, our assessment is that, and we will publish it incidentally, we will send it to Jacob in some point in the near future. Um, our assessment is that um, Spain and other countries for which the, we haven't done the numbers, but Spain needs certainly a universal basic income cover for at least 40% of the population uh, on the grounds of obtaining it as of right uh, to support uh, consumption to support basic living standards and then to overcome reliance on the labor market in that way. 
we think that this is the sensible thing to do and it will pay for itself. It's actually, it's actually economically sensible uh, as well. Uh, I think the moment has come. I think you're right. The moment has come. It's not like before. Coronavirus has changed the terms of the debate. Now is the time to argue for it and to say, go beyond, go beyond the labor market, go beyond this nonsense of laying people off. 26 million people are unemployed in the United States uh, at the moment. Go beyond all that, pay people's income, um, support consumption, uh, and then reorganize employment subsequently. Um, obviously, this would be um, an emergency measure. So that's the thinking here. And uh, uh, we are prepared to argue it and we will do it because uh, we think the moment is right. And the government of the rights in this country, but also other governments elsewhere will not accept it. It's clear, mm. they will not accept it. They will fight, they will fight against it. Um, which ties in with the idea of a social contract, you know, redoing the social contract. The, the ideas that have been discussing about intervening on the side of supply. In other words, nationalizing key areas, not just protecting the profits of Branson or, or the profits of banks and so on, but actually take over that, uh, that, that, that area of uh, economic and social activity. Take it over and run it on a, on a public basis. And as you do that, uh, have, a process, have a program of, uh, of, of, of public investment and rebalance the economy. That kind of contract, that kind of social contract to go together with the universal basic income. Socialist, socialist measures, basically. Uh, openly so, and, uh, and, and argued on a collectivist basis. Uh, and that, together with communal activity locally, I mentioned state aid previously, and that allows me to deal with the democratizing question, the second question. I mentioned uh, state aid previously. State aid will be of crucial importance in the time to come. We've got a number of local authorities across Britain commanding large amounts of money. Uh, some of them have been uh, ahead of the game, using that, th th those funds to support uh, the local economy, Preston, Preston being well known for it, the, the Preston project. With the relaxation of state aid, the lifting of controls, even in this country, the change uh, in, the, in the name of the game for that, the scope for intervention by communities, by organizations, by activists at the local level has suddenly increased enormously. And that's what we're going to be faced with in, in, in the time to come. Intervention by local communities to argue about how to use public monies locally, what to support, how to support local communities, how to support local activity, um, how to, which, which activities to promote. That is democratization, uh, one step towards democratization, and that's going to be very important uh, in the time to come. Uh, and the last point is about Syriza. I, I don't really, I mean, it depresses me to think and talk about Syriza um, uh, because it was such, a, such an enormous lost opportunity. Um, uh, I mean, Syriza didn't do anything right. I mean, with Syriza, what you, the only thing you can learn from Syriza is what not to do not what to do, you've got to do the opposite of what they did. Uh, because, and, and, and the crucial thing here is, you've got to be honest. You can't play games. You've got to be honest with people. You've got to tell people what you're gonna do and what you promise them you're gonna do has to be based on concrete evidence and on, uh, and on serious analysis. And when it comes to it, you've got to be prepared to break eggs. Syriza was not prepared to break eggs. When they, 
when the when the, the class of, of, of interests came up, as it inevitably would do, when that came up, Syriza backed off. They didn't have the they didn't have the guts to to confront the established interests in Greece. Um, we, and they backed off. They backed off. They surrendered, and then they applied the same policies. We must not make the same mistake. Here is an opportunity to break that throttle, the, that 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 complex of interests that is actually killing this country and killing Europe. It's a it's a it's a unique opportunity to make some uh, some, uh, some some steps in that direction, and we should do that. We should not be scared. We should get on and do it. Thanks very much, Kostas. Um, I'm going to move on to the next group of questions, uh, to group four. And I'm looking, is that Kenneth? Fantastic. Thank you very much, Kenneth. How are you getting on? Uh, thanks for having us on. Uh, thanks for sharing all that knowledge with us, definitely. Um, our question was more regarding Kostas' statement with kind of um, public demand and public supply being used or arisen through public borrowing. So the nationalization and then the kind of um, increasing demand through state intervention. Do you think, given that we're going in a financial market crash at the same time, that there's going to be the kind of liquidity going about in international markets to actually get that borrowing off the ground? And more, do you think, that these rates in which we borrow are going to be kind of exorbitant, I guess. Thanks very much for that. And I'll just take two more. So it's a group of three questions again. So we're on group number five. I'm just looking for you. Number five. <laughs> number five. Uh, Ah, I've got you. Mike. Yep. Sorry, I, I couldn't see you, see you waving there. So uh, thanks very much for your patience. Uh, your question, please, Mike. Uh, our group, uh, yeah, thank you, Costas. We were thoroughly stimulated. Um, our group uh, talked about universal basic income um, exclusively, really, and recognising that on the one hand, uh, there are versions of UBI which are compassionate, and, and uh, governed by ethics and, and fashion, and on the other hand, uh, versions which are governed by exploitation. And so uh, we wonder whether you've got any uh, further uh, guidance about the sort of UBI, uh, the detail of the UBI we should be, uh, we should be arguing for, campaigning for, um, uh, particularly in order to protect the possibility that some of the least fortunate people in society, particularly, for example, people with disabilities, will end up worse off than they were before. Thanks, Mike. That's a, a really good question there. Thank you. Um, and I'll take one more. Um, that's group number six. Again, you just wave and I'll search for you. Uh, just wave again. Ah, yes, I have you. I have you, Tam. Hi, Hi Tam. Yeah, uh, thanks, uh, thanks, well, there. thanks for that. Uh, your question, please. Well, we were 
rudely cut off just as we were in the midst. We didn't realise we, we hadn't got very far. Everybody hadn't spoken. Um, didn't realise, I think, how long it was to last that breakout session. But Alice was just about to supplement a sort of question that was saying, uh, is it basically we've moved from neoliberalism to state capitalism? Now, was that cost of what Costas was saying fundamentally? But she was going to supplement that question. So I think go to Alice. Okay. I will do that right now. Um, welcome, Alice. I feel a bit cheeky because it feels like we're getting two in here, sneaking in two questions. So <laughs> apologies to everyone. Sorry. Um, it was just a Costas. You could um, expand on what you. It seemed like you were saying that um, a sign of the fact that neoliberal, neoliberalism um, or financialization, interest bearing capital was on and on um, unsteady grounds. An indicator you used was uh, debt, and that debt was decreasing in some areas, and state debt was increasing. Um, could you expand on then how you factor in the, the increase in corporate debt that we're seeing into that analysis and just kind of clarify that? It was more clarification of how, because I know state um, corporation debt has been, you know, one of the most defining features of, of this. So if you could just expand on that, please. Thanks very much, Alice. Okay, Costas, a, a flurry of very simple questions uh, for you. No, a difficult question. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, let me start with the liquidity question, the costs. I said borrow because we have to act quickly, right? It's clear, we have to act quickly. If we don't act quickly, then recession will take place, economic activity will contract, businesses will close down. It's much more difficult to restart than to keep something going and transform it. Much more difficult. So we must prevent people being thrown on the scrap heap and, and, and the, the, the destruction of productive capacity. If you're going to act quickly, you need funds. There is no escaping the need to borrow. Now, at the moment, the last problem that the UK faces is availability of liquidity. There is no problem at all. Uh, and the same with the United States and the same with a whole host of other countries, not the EU. The EU is different and this allows me to, to, to discuss the EU in more detail. And the reason why the problem doesn't hold for the UK particularly, or even less for the United States, is because they've got command over their own central bank. So the United States government can announce huge spending programs. I'm not defending them, and I'm not saying that they're ideal, but they've announced them. And it can rely on the Federal Reserve System to buy the bonds and to keep the interest rate low. There's a flood of money being created by the central banks. Similar things are happening in this country. If you've got the central bank, uh, and it is part of the state, because that's where the central bank is, um, then you can, answer, you can solve the problem of borrowing. That's exactly what I meant by war finance. When you're fighting a war, the state borrows in order to create whatever capacity it wants to create. Um, and the central bank is the mechanism and the banking system, the mechanism through which the debt is managed uh, on the part uh, of the country as a whole. That is perfectly possible in the, in the UK. Uh, that's what the government uh, should do immediately. It's a Tory government, it's not a socialist government, but it is up to them to act. And it is for, for us to demand that they should uh, respond now, 
not uh, in here. So it's perfectly possible. And I don't think it will be a matter of um, expensive costs because as I say, the central bank can intervene crucially uh, right now, not in Europe. And that's the difference. I already mentioned that about the ECB. The ECB is not the national central bank. So if Italy decides they want to spend money to boost its economy, like Britain is doing, uh, or and not to be doing more, Italy cannot rely on the central bank to buy the debts. It has to rely on the ECB. And what the ECB will do is not up to Italy. It's more up to Germany uh, and other countries. And that exactly is the, that's exactly the problem. That's exactly the hindrance. That's why EU participation is actually proving a problem right now for nation um, states in dealing with coronavirus. We can come back to that uh, if we've got uh, time subsequently. So liquidity is not really a problem uh, at the moment because of command over money. Um, let me come now to uh, uh, questions of state capitalism and I want to finish with universal basic income because I think politically that's very important right now. Um, no, no, we're not moving towards state capitalism. This is still neoliberal financialized capitalism. What, we, what we're witnessing is actually a very powerful emergence of, nation, of the nation state. The nation state never went away. It was always there. It was always, I mean, the talk about the state uh, disappearing, the market dominating, is just talk. Easy talk that, you, that, that, that came in huge volumes uh, from the financial system and from various other people ideologically committed to what uh, has happened the last few decades. The nation state was always there. And it is there in Europe, incidentally. Europe in that respect is similar to Britain is similar to, um, to, 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 to the United States. The nation state is, is, is pivotal. Um, the nation state, the last decade, has borrowed very heavily, hugely, in the United States uh, and in other countries. Why? To rescue finance. To rescue finance from its collapse. The main increase in debt the last decade in mature countries, um, the core of the system was by the state less so by enterprises. Enterprises also borrowed, they took advantage uh, in the last few years of cheap, low interest rates. Uh, and that is a source of weakness. That is a source of private sector weakness, the enterprises, the, the capitalist enterprises. Um, that, that might prove to be a um, uh, potential uh, uh, crisis point in, in, in the time to come. But just bear in mind with that, with interest rates close to zero, an enterprise can maintain a large volume of debt. Don't forget, I mean, even if it's not doing well, if interest rates are zero, then they're giving you scope. And that's what they've done. That's why they drove interest rates down to that, to allow people like Branson and people like others uh, to continue operating. So the state has always been very important in neoliberal capitalism. The last 10 years, it's become more important. And right now, it has emerged in an unprecedented way. Un unprecedented. It shut the economy down. It used autocratic methods to tell you not to go out. It, it, it forbade entire activities. And it taken action of, of nationalizing wages, intervening in, in company balance sheets, doing all sorts of things. The power of the state is phenomenal, enormous. Will it use it in order to promote the social good? Oh no, oh no, no, no. That's not at all necessary. Um, it does what the state has always done in the course of neoliberal financialized capitalism. It makes it up as it goes along, manipulates the situation, uses which instruments it's going to deploy in order to defend 
vested interests in order to defend the established interests. And if we let them, that's what they're going to do again. That's, that's what's going to happen again. So it's not socialism that's emerging. It's actually intervening and controlling certain areas of the economy to defend um, capitalist activity. But it opens up a, a terrain for us. That is a cost that I've got to bear. And universal basic income is one such example, you see. As I mentioned before, I've, I've always been very skeptical. Um, for reasons that were mentioned in the question, essentially, it feels like charity to a certain extent. And it feels like um, trying to rescue capitalism in ways that don't make economic sense. So I've always been very skeptical. I've never actually defended the idea. But look at the situation right now. What have we got? The state nationalizing the payment of wages. That's what's happening. Uh, not in the way that we would have liked, but that's what's happening. Well, then, if that's what's happening, let's do it properly. Let's take the, let's take the opportunity and argue for, 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 for universal basic income as a right, as a right of people. Make it, a, make it a universal right. But obviously, we can append conditions to it so that better off people don't receive it. I'll tell you what we're proposing for Spain, and then you can think about it, um, what we will propose for Spain. And you, you, you can think about it for, for Britain. We can work on it in the, in, in the time to come. It is possible to propose to have a, 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 a program of universal basic income in Spain today that will cover the entire population as of right. But if you've got an income above a certain level, to, to, to claim that, you'll have to apply. You'll have to apply for the basic income. And you will be told that if your income is above a certain level, you're not entitled to apply, obviously. If, you, if your income has not been affected, it would be just extra money. And if you do claim it, you pay it back next year out of your, together with your taxes. We're calculating and estimating that about 40% of the population will claim it. Be theirs, it will be theirs as of right. That will be a tremendous way of dealing with the shock of coronavirus, of dealing with the problems that the poorest are facing. It will be an equitable way and it will be theirs as a right, not charity. It will be a right for, uh, there for everyone. I think Britain needs something similar. I mean, there is profound poverty in so many parts uh, of the country. I mean, I, I dread to think of what's happening in many towns in the north and elsewhere uh, as the economy shuts down. I mean, uh, we haven't got any, we haven't received any evidence yet, but it must be horrendous. So um, it's a sensible socialist policy at the moment, and it allows us to argue for further action subsequently. Yes, do that to deal with the coronavirus shock in 2020, and then rework the conditions of the labor market in a socialist direction. And that is, again, intervening in a democratizing way, uh, in a crucial democratizing way. It's working enough again. Thank you very much um, for those uh, for those answers, Costas. We've we are coming to the end, um, so it's just a couple more questions, and then uh, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, we're on Group Seven, I believe. Uh, who was in Group Seven? Uh, okay, Camillo. Hello. Hi, yes, we can hear you. Good to see you, Camille. Likewise, Johnny. Uh, thank you, everybody. Thanks, Costas. Uh, we found that a fascinating discussion as well, although only two members of our group participated and others may have technical problems. Uh, we didn't actually get to reach a, 
a, a question, but uh, the general conversation is actually around, um, uh, and maybe Costas might not be able to comment, but about um, the, the, the problems for the, the Scottish um, mainstream nationalist strategy of exiting and rejoining the European Union. Um, obviously, that, in my opinion, that's uh, uh, been the mainstream of the independence movement strategy for quite some time, and this crisis shows it to, to really be problematic. Maybe the question could be how could uh, uh, the, the Scottish left use that or to, 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 um, to, to re-energise the independence movement. Uh, again, maybe not the right question for cost aspect. No, I think that's real useful. Thanks for that, uh, Camillo. And uh, group number eight. Thanks very much. Uh, Gregor, thank you. Hi, Costas. Uh, thanks very much uh, for joining us uh, this evening. That's a fantastic thing to do um, at a difficult time. Um, our group spoke about defensive demands and offensive demands. Um, and we began from um, some of the, the summary demands which you suggested both on the supply side and on the demand side. Um, and we thought that um, key to achieving leadership in a crisis is innovation and being seen to have uh, new ideas for new problems. Um, so we wondered whether you could speak a little bit more on uh, the need for offensive demands and on the specificities of some of those. Uh, I know you've gone into detail on the demand side um, on uh, UBI, but perhaps on the supply side, a little more detail on, you start to speak about strategic nationalization and re-engineering of uh, supply chains. Uh, thanks very much. Thank you uh, very much for that, Gregor. And I'll just take the very last uh, question uh, for you, Costas, and that's from group number nine, who is Ed. Hi, Ed. Welcome. Uh, hi, Jonathan. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Costas. That was uh, a, a brilliant lecture. Thank you very much. Uh, a, a, perfect, a, a perfect analysis. I'm sure we all agree on. Uh, just as uh, Camillo just said there, I just wanted to bring up, um, it's sort of Scottish-centric here, and, and, and as you know, we're uh, just a few years out of, you know, losing a referendum there. And, and, and what's transpired since is, you know, we've gone from one and a half million voters who voted for it down to, a, you know, a few thousand act activists throughout the country. But we've made up a great network, you know, as, as we've gone along. But the, but the entire independence movement is, is, as you probably know, mostly based around the SNP, the political arm of the party. And, uh, and a lot of it, the grassroots, like where we are here in, in Port William, we do this sort of, we do our own thing where we don't follow the growth commission neoliberal you know agenda and and so we have this break say in in the independence movement where there is quite a lot of friction of, of that and so as far as our sort of covid response goes uh, as a community and specifically from the bottom from the bottom up i just wonder it seems to me that, that scottish independence is going to be linked it, it's kind of inevitable that this is going to be part of our response I mean, as it stands, like I said, us and the, and the sort of anti-neoliberal sort of agenda would say, okay, we'll take independence and then we'll try to change it after that. You know, that seems to be the general thing. So half the population at least would go for, for independence. But my question is, sorry, like I said, it, it's just to get round to this. So like I said about the nation state is very important. And we've got these networks, like I said, where we can build up debates, we can work in communities and all that. But, but we have got this independence thing locked in with us. Hope you understand that question. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Costa. Yeah. 
Thanks very much for Ed, uh, for that, Ed. And I'll just pass over to you, Costas, for uh, these questions and any final comments you've got. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Scottish independence, right? I, I knew it was going to come up. There was a question. Uh, now, I've been following the debate. I've been talk discussing it here in London with my Scottish friends. Um, I've also been talking to Catalans uh, about independence because obviously we've got parallel stories, not the same, but parallel um, stories. So uh, uh, I'm not a great expert on Scottish independence. I'll tell you what my overall take is. Scottish independence, if it is to make sense to me and to many others, must be associated with social radicalism and social transformation. If it is not associated with social radicalism, social transformation, being anti-capitalist, offering a new society, offering new hope and new prospects to working people in Scotland and in England and elsewhere, then count me out. It's not interesting. I mean, we're not here to, 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 to talk about the, uh, the merits of Scottishness in the abstract, right? We, it's, it's social change that, uh, that matters. So if the program that Scottish nationalists put on the table in the aftermath of coronavirus, actually socially radical, and I can see how independence will be connected with it, and it could only be delivered in the conditions of independence, that would, then I would support it. I would support it. But that's what has to be demonstrated. That's what has to be demonstrated to have uh, um, socialist support. Now, I don't think it's that difficult to do. You need to think about it, and you need to finesse the points that we've been discussing all along for the Scottish context. Where the, where the soup begins to, uh, to get bad, where the, <laughs> where the mixture begins to get problematic is, of course, the EU. Because you talk to people who are in favor of Scottish independence and they want to leave, uh, uh, join, a, join a totality with no borders to create a border with England. And uh, go into the EU because that will defend what? I mean, it's difficult to see, right? And one has to start with that. I mean, and I think what you're doing is of paramount importance because you're prepared to challenge this. You're prepared to put it on the table. And I think the, the response and the reaction of the EU at the moment is giving you a tremendous opportunity. A tremendous opportunity. You've got to be, you've got not to understand at all what's happening in order to be in favor of the EU uh, in the present conditions. Now, there is, a, there is a genuine question here, which is, would we be better off if we left? Would the situation in England be better off? And the group in, in, in Britain be better off if we left? And the group that I took part in, I was actually a listener, and raised the issue. Are we, am I saying that Italy should leave and Germany should leave and it would be better? Actually, for the Italian left right now and for the German left and for the Spanish left, the issue doesn't pose itself in that way. I would argue right now, in Italy, in Spain, and, and, and elsewhere, that what they need to do is they need to argue for their own national governments to do what is necessary to rescue the economy, to support working people, um, to defend what's happening and protect social interests, and do it as if the EU did not exist. That's what they have to do. Because if you actually try and couch everything you do in terms of the EU, you'll be humbled as the Italians are being hampered at the moment, as the Spaniards are being hampered at the moment. Act as if the EU did not exist, because that's what the North is also doing. 
That's what the rich uh, are also doing. Uh, that's really what's happening. In, in effect, the EU doesn't exist um, for the powerful countries. As I mentioned already, the stability and growth pact has been lifted. Um, the state aid rules have been lifted. Act as if it didn't exist and let it, let it all come out in the wash uh, in the end. That's what the Italians should do and that's what um, the Spaniards should do and so should the others. The priority is not the Euro. The priority is not the EU. The priority is Madrid, Milan, Rome, uh, working people uh, suffering in the south uh, and so on. So that's what I would say. And I think that's how you should approach it in Scotland too. You know, what do you, we need to act for Scotland. We need to act for uh, social transformation and we need to protect democratic rights. And if independence is necessary for that, then we're all for independence. Um, so that's what I would say on this. I don't really have to say anything more on Scottish nationalism. The only thing I want to say is two things quickly. Uh, one on, um, uh, supply intervention and one on, uh, it was an issue about Germany and Merkel in the group that I uh, eavesdropped in. Uh, it is true that Germany has responded differently to, um, to this crisis with more effectiveness than uh, other countries in Europe. Uh, we don't know yet because the final tally is not out, but for the moment it looks as if German capitalism has handled it uh, more successfully, say, to say that British capitalism or and Italian and so on. Why is that? I don't think it has to do with order liberalism or anything like that. It has to do with greater capacity of Germany to spend and borrow. Germany has got huge surpluses and ability to borrow and they were prepared to, to mobilize that. I've been, I've been telling you about um, spending and borrowing. Germany is at the forefront, at the forefront of this. Uh, while they're lecturing the Italians, while they're lecturing the Spaniards, they've been spending like there's no tomorrow. And the, the medical system is uh, also very well organized by European standards uh, for reasons which have to do with the political economy of Germany. Um, they were prepared to use it. Um, they mobilized the, um, the, the ability to test and they handled it uh, better so far. Um, I don't think it has to do with all the liberalism or anything like that. It is the hegemonic position of Germany. Germany is the greatest beneficiary of the EU so far, and it's apparent in how it's been dealing with the coronavirus crisis. The last thing I want to say is offensive demands, as has been mentioned before, because everything I've told you about demands is a mixture of defensive and offensive, and I think that's how socialists should operate. It isn't just defensive. At all times, you should be thinking of opening up the territory uh, for, for change. So on the demand side, it's obvious. I, like I said, I mean, I think it's the moment for universal basic income to be taken seriously even by, radical, by the radical left, it's the moment. Uh, on the supply side, I've already mentioned state aid. State aid is very, very important. We can intervene at, across a number of communities and that is offensive. We can actually advocate local transformation. Local, we, we do have the capacity and if we build the networks, if we build the political representation locally, we can argue for significant change uh, in local communities, we can localize uh, more strongly uh, production, activity, and so on. It is possible to do through, um, to a certain extent, uh, local uh, uh, authorities and, and, and their budgets. And that's an important thing for the near future. But more broadly, of course, public investment, a program of public investment. We need to be arguing for a program of public investment uh, in key areas with public 
um, ownership and public control, nationalization. I mean, it is uh, outrageous that they're supporting all these enterprises. They're nationalizing their profit and loss accounts, but they're not nationalizing the way they operate. So uh, that's what we need to be arguing, and that's an offensive uh, measure. These are reforms in a socialist direction, and the moment is more opportune than at any time. Actually, friends and comrades, it's a gift. It's a gift. We didn't create it. It's a gift. The situation was gifted to us in this, in this incredible way. It's a tragedy because it's a public health issue, but it has shaken the, the structures so badly uh, that it has given socialists an opportunity to argue coherently, sensibly, and in ways that most ordinary people will understand. So we should do it. Well, thanks uh, very much. I'm going to clap and urge everyone else in their, their living rooms and so on to, to clap as well. What a yeah. sight. Uh, Costas, uh, thanks very much for uh, your time and for bringing that analysis to us. Um, that is the, the first of what is going to be a series of forums that are going to take place every Thursday while the lockdown's on and we're going to build uh, these each week. Uh, next week we have Leo Panich talking about Labour uh, after Corbyn and we've constructed on the website a page that if you go to contour.co.uk you'll find all of the talks uh, upcoming uh, listed there. I won't go through them all just now because I know we've had uh, quite a long meeting but I would urge you to do that. Uh, like us on Facebook, you can also subscribe to the Contourcast um, uh, podcast. It's also worth saying that we're actually going to turn all of this talk into a podcast as well so the whole thing has been uh, recorded uh, for that purpose so we'll be able to circulate this to as many people as we can and there are new articles going up on the website all of the time and uh, we are going to be adding to them now there's another aspect that i want to just raise here which is that we're also creating a, a whatsapp group for everyone that joins uh, these talks and everything that i've just outlined there is going to be sent directly to you in an email in the next half hour um, after this uh, meeting ends, uh, that email will also include uh, the Eventbrite page to register for next week's uh, talk. Um, I just want to end by thanking uh, everyone for coming along and to say that all of the ideas that we're talking about are not there for some nice abstract discussion on a Thursday evening. They are there to be a guide for action. They are there for us to develop organisation around uh, in order that we can meet the challenges that are that are coming down the road. And so Conta wants to play a role within that. We want to provide some kind of ideological and political and theoretical infrastructure, but we want to combine that with organization and with activism. We want to build, uh, build the website, build the following and, uh, and start, to, start to exert some influence in the Scottish scene. So um, do sign up to all the things that I mentioned. We'll see you, I hope, uh, next uh, Thursday. As I say, we'll be hearing from Leo Panich and we'll go with the same uh, format as we did uh, tonight, learning uh, as we go um, about um, where we can improve uh, as each week passes. Uh, thank you very much, everyone. Uh, enjoy the rest of your night. You have 15 minutes to get yourselves ready to go and uh, clap for the NHS and uh, turn the clapping for the NHS into a movement that can build a new society from the ashes of the coronavirus. Thank you. Thank you, Tov.